Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. An expressly special guest, Ms. Ruta Lee, actress, writer, philosopher, a Renaissance woman in an age that is very rarely cognizant of such abilities in individuals. Welcome to Seldom Said, Ruta. I am so happy to be with you, Robert, and thank you for sharing your wonderful audience with me. Um, Seldom Said is a very inept title, I sort of feel, because you have so many wonderful guests who have so much to say and so much to contribute uh, to help other lives. Uh, I thank you for sharing your audience and your time with me. Your thanks is deeply appreciated. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Wow, that's probably a year's worth of information you're asking for. However, I was born uh, in Montreal, Canada, of Lithuanian parents, very poor folk, that wanted to get into the United States, but the quotas were closed back in 19, the late 20s. And so they came to Canada, which was right next door to the United States, where everybody knew the streets were paved with gold. And um, my father got a job when he first came over uh, working in the wheat fields of Saskatchewan. And then saved enough money to bring my mother over, and they went to work there. They, uh, my, my father had become a tailor, and my mother therefore became a seamstress, and they worked for tailoring concerns. And I was born in Canada, and I owe my life, I think, and career beyond my parents to a wonderful kindergarten teacher, and I remember her name, Mrs. Jackson, who said to my mother, your child is a little different than the rest of my other kindergarten children. Give her lessons. Give her music lessons. Give her dance lessons. Give her whatever it is, because she's she's meant for something like that, which my mother did. And my darling father used to say to her, for why are you wasting money? She don't like practice. She don't do. She don't work. <laughs> but my mom said she's going to pay for lessons come hell or high water because her heart wouldn't ache that she didn't give me a chance if I had one coming. And God love her. She always felt that I was Lithuania's answer to Shirley Temple. She didn't know anything about theater, which was close in New York. But she did know about movies, because they would save their pennies and go on occasion to see movies. And so she saw Shirley Temple. And she thought, my daughter can do that. And she would put me in little amateur shows and things, and I would work at the church, you know, on stage, singing and dancing as a child. And um, long story short, she worked it out for us to get to the United States in 1940. 47 and 48, which was an amazing feat because all of the visas to get into the United States were being used up on the Lithuanian quota by 
the displaced persons from the war. And how this happened surely was due to my mother's prayers and my father's at that point. And we got to Hollywood. And in time, I got to working in Hollywood. And I'm very, very happy to say that both my mother and father lived to see me achieve some success in Hollywood and uh, internationally. And uh, so it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And beautifully lived because with all the pain that you have in show business of of rejection, rejection, rejection for, you know, a hundred rejections for every one job, it's still an amazing business to be in, uh, filled with uh, joy uh, that more than makes up for the heartaches. And um, I'm just so happy to be a part of it, and I'm so happy to be kind of putting down little highlights and, and moments from my life in the book that I've uh, done. It's just about done. And um, sharing them with anybody who cares. I'm sure many would. You use that well, term, difference. I have the impression that a lot of the American educational system does not reward difference in students we turn out cookie-coder people who have 100 on the test but don't feel at the varying depths that an artist would. Do you feel that your mother was unique in that respect? My mother was unique in many respects. Both my parents were, because I have to explain that when I said poor, my mother carried her shoes to church in the little town in Lithuania where they were, Daugai. Uh, because they had to be passed down to the next daughter. There there wasn't any money for foolishness. It was, I mean, they were incredible. And, and this is the family that was poor and had nothing, and yet most of the family got deported to Siberia when the Russians took over. I shouldn't say the Russians, because they're good people. The communists took over. Mm. And uh, so she somehow... This quiet, lovely woman who didn't make any noise about anything managed to tell my father that he had to come to America or to Canada for a better life for them. She's the one that maneuvered the, the schooling for me. She's the one that used to come and pick me up from school with a little lunch for me to eat on the bus when she took me to a dance lesson. She's the one who maneuvered to get us into the United States, which is a great blessing. And she's the one that saw to it that I had a few more either dance or music or something lessons once we got to California. And I'm so happy that she was the one that smiled and would look at my father and say, see, wasn't so bad. I didn't waste the money. Marvelous story. There is a... A great Russian poet, Yevgeny Yevtushenko, he often uses the phrase, East or West, home is best. For your parents and for indeed yourself, was there a foot in both worlds, the United States and Vilnius? Lithuania? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that's why we have so many hyphenated names, you know, Polish-American, Lithuanian-American, German-American, 
we're all Americans. Anybody who comes from another place is so thrilled to be an American. But you never forget your heritage. And while it's another generation earlier than me, I too feel like I have roots in Amer- in Lithuania. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was permitted to take back my Canadian citizenship, and I'm very grateful to Canada for housing my family and me for all those years. And then uh, I was given Lithuanian citizenship just recently uh, by the president of Lithuania, and that's kind of nice. So I have three citizenships, but of course, the one that means the world to me would be my Canadian, my uh, American citizenship, even though I was Canadian-born. Is there a state of mind that you've proceeded to embrace, whereby, to paraphrase, as a French phrase, Je suis un citoyen de la monde. Do you consider yourself as an artist, a citizen of the world? I don't know that I consider myself a citizen of the world, although I embrace everything in the world. I embrace the lovely, lovely things there are in this world and try to overlook the the tragic, awful things that we also have in our world. Um. When artist seems like such an elegant phrase for showbiz, um, I'm truly a showbiz baby. I I love every aspect of show business. I love the movies because there's time taken uh, and money used to make things quite perfect in the movie industry, a lot of sitting around and waiting for lighting and sound and everything to be done, but nevertheless, a little more time is taken. I love television, which is an immediate business because one hello reaches millions and millions of people, and you can share your thoughts uh, not only as a performer, but as a live artist uh, with millions of people who invite you into their home. That's a very special gift to be invited into millions of homes. And I love the stage because there is nothing as wonderful as sharing an experience with a big, full theater of live, breathing, sighing, laughing, crying people. And to hear applause at the end of it, especially if people are standing, and then getting paid at the end of the week, wow, what a blessing that is. It's very hard work, but there's nothing quite as joyous as feeling the presence of an audience going with you. So call me an artist because you are a gentleman, and uh, that is a beautiful phrase, and I love it, beautiful thought an artist, but I'm really a showbiz baby. There are many people who point to a moment where they felt their life focus was established. Did you have some sort of epiphanal moment, either on stage, in front of a camera, where you suddenly realized to yourself, this is who I am, this is where I'll be? 
I wish I could say that I did have that epiphany, but I I don't. If I had it, I was too young to remember it. Because I think that I always hated the lessons, and I always hated practice, but I loved getting up on stage and performing. And my mom tells me that as a child, I loved people. That has a great deal to do with it, I think, wanting to please a large crowd and and feeling great relief when you were accepted. And she said that I used to, she'd take me for a walk and I'd climb every set of stairs and ring every doorbell to say hello to everybody. And and if there was a, some poor drunk lying in the street, I would kiss him and say hello and make sure that he got to know me. So I was a precocious child that um, managed to kind of learn a little bit. But I think right from the beginning, I sensed that I love being in front of an audience. And to this day, I have to tell you, Robert, that I loathe rehearsals and finding my character and building it and trying to rehearse and all of that and practice. But I love getting out on stage and doing it. So that kind of epiphany, I think, happened when I was probably three and recognized that I like being out there. As a performer, many of your comments are rather deep, given the interviews I've done over the past years. As a performer, do you consider yourself also an educator? I feel that if I have anything to teach at all, it is the need and the lack of the need that I'm feeling in the younger generation of volunteerism and doing for others what they can't do for themselves. Um, I grew up, I think, being an appreciator of those who came from vaudeville and those who went into the early movies and those who went into the movies when I started in the movies, which was kind of the tail end of the golden years of uh, entertainment in Hollywood. Um, All of those people taught me that you have to give back some of the blessings that come your way. And I always loved actors and performers, musicians, dancers, it doesn't matter, performers, because they gave away to any cause, any charitable cause, the only thing they have to sell, which is their time and talent. And we have been asked to do that for generations of performers, and we do. But I'm sensing in the now generation that that is not quite the same experience. It's kind of like, and I don't know whether it's the stars themselves who have gotten very famous and very rich overnight on very little hard work on the way up, uh, or whether it's the managers, but I find that when I'm trying to find somebody to replace either myself or as I did for years with Debbie Reynolds, etc., 
trying to replace us in the Thalians, the organization that I head up, that um, it's a what's in it for me. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll come, but I have to bring a, a table full of people, and, and you'll have to pave the transportation, and um, you'll have to pave my special musicians, and blah, blah, blah. None of that existed back in, in my earlier days, but it does now, and I, I don't know if it's a portent of things to come. I'm not, I'm, of course, please realize, Robert, that I'm generalizing. I am not speaking for every young person, because there are still very charitable, wonderful people out there that are willing to do. Certainly. But there are an awful lot that I try to get, or have tried to get, to do something good uh, for my organization, which is devoted to mental health, Hollywood for Mental Health. Um, it's hard. It's difficult. So what I teach all the time, my credo is, please, I don't care if it's just giving a smile to somebody on the elevator, whether it's commenting on how cute their shoes are or their hairdo is, or whether it's actually reading to the blind or whether it's driving somebody where they need to go, do a kindness. Those don't cost you anything. Do a kindness to somebody, and uh, it will be appreciated by those who receive it, and it'll be appreciated by the power that be in heaven that takes care of us. Why do you feel that you've never really developed a hard edge, the kind that one reads about uh, in regard to stars, directors, producers? You're speaking so easily of just getting onto an elevator and showing someone affection. Why the difference? I don't know why. Maybe it's the background. Maybe it's the fact that my mother let me climb the stairs and kiss the drunk on the street. Maybe, uh, you know, she preferred that I didn't, but probably she threw her hands up and said, oh, well, well, what can I do? But it has stood me in good stead. I've always felt that whether it was that elevator ride where I made somebody laugh or smile or whatever, that... I I got something out of it, too. Um, in in my own kind of funny way, I, I felt blessed doing something for somebody. And Lord knows I've spent the last at least 60 years of my life doing exactly that, working very, very hard in raising money for the Thalians, which is mental health. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've not ever experienced to where I would remember any kind of negativity from people that maybe were a little hardened, maybe weren't as generous with their time, talent, or attitude. Um, I don't see that. I've never felt that in Hollywood or on any stage that I was ever on. Uh, I've, I've only felt that I got sunshine back at me. So, therefore, I think there's a lesson in that. Do good, and do good will come your way. We still seem to be experiencing a time where mental health is the type of topic that families deal with behind closed doors. Was there a risk when you and people like Debbie Reynolds, your associate, spoke out openly for assistance in regard to mental health? 
Well, I think everybody took it with kind of a laugh. Uh, Hollywood and actors talking about mental health, that was sort of like the blind leading the blind. But, you know, the organization, the Thalians, that I'm so proud of, and by the way, for your listeners, it's T-H-A-L-I-A-N-S. Thalia was one of the Greek muses who also took care of the straying lambs, and that seemed like an appropriate title for a group of young people who got tired. When I say young people, I'm talking about young Hollywood types and others in allied industries, be it publicity or agents or producers or directors, whatever, writers, who got together and said, you know, they got tired of being called hard-drinking, pot-smoking, sex-minded idiots who had nothing to contribute, and said, you know, we get together to sit around the piano and have drinks and sing and whatnot, and there's a lot of talent here. Why don't we sell tickets and raise a few dollars for uh, a charity? So two members at the time were Mamie Van Doren and Jane Mansfield, and God love their souls, they were both given attributes that I sure don't have, the largest bosoms I've ever seen, and they went out looking for what charity needed to be taken. And they came back to the meeting the next month saying, well, all the good diseases have been taken, heart and cancer and whatnot. But they found a doctor who dealt with emotionally disturbed children. And he described that kind of child as a rotten apple in a barrel that can infect the whole barrel unless you fix that apple. And we took up the cause of emotionally disturbed children. And 18 years later, and a lot of funds that we raised later, we built the first clinic that went into the big Cedars-Sinai complex here in Los Angeles. And we opened the doors to a clinic that took care from pediatric to geriatric patients. And we were very, very happy to be able to do this. And we did this for many, many years. And then 50, 60 years later, we decided to change our focus a little bit and deal with the people, the young gorgeous people that are willing to put their lives on the line for us in the military, wherever we send them. And they come back to the United States disabled, broken down, uh, mentally broken down, and they fall through the cracks, and we're not taking good care of them. And we made that kind of our mission. So we joined up with UCLA and a group called Operation Mend. Operation Mend does a beautiful job of replacing blown-off legs and arms and, and faces that are scarred and burned and bodies that are broken. And we Thalians try to deal with the broken mind, spirit, and therefore heart of these beautiful young people. And I feel that we've really got a great cause going. And, you know, I sort of went by way of Albany of giving you an answer about uh, where we looked askance at. Well, I think we were looked at as kind of a joke at first when we talk about mental health and, and crazy Hollywood actors. Um, but we gained a great deal of respect in no time at all 
And I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be sitting somewhere. Debbie and I would, would be, you know, having dinner somewhere, and somebody would walk up to us and say, you know, I don't know how to thank you because what you, the gift that the Thalians gave to my son or my daughter changed our lives forever. And what can I do but say thank you? So that that is a, a great, great blessing uh, to have the thanks and the gratitude, the prayers of thousands of people whose names we will never know, but I feel in whose prayers of gratitude we will always be in. And I think that's what both Debbie and I thrived on for so many years. And she was the girl that taught me, Ruta, you can ask anybody for anything in this world as long as it isn't for yourself. And how true that is. When you do for somebody else, somebody benefits, and we all benefit. It sounds as if you received an Academy Award every day of your life. It's a marvelous story. Robert, you're so right. Um, when I stop and think, and I, and I get lots of email messages and, and calls and little notes, and I, I talk to the doctors who say, oh, you know, they haven't gotten to you, but boy, they've told us how much they appreciate what the Thalians is doing. Um, so I would ask your darling listeners to, to go to Thalians, T-H-A-L-I-A-N-S, Dot org, and you can read all about us and um, know what we do and how much our returning veterans benefit from our services. And, uh, of course, you know, we did this. The Thalians did all of this by honoring somebody in show business every year that not only dazzled us with their performances on screen, large or small, or on stage, or in the recording studio, but who dazzled us with their philanthropic performances as well. And we honored everybody from Frank Sinatra, through Whoopi Goldberg, through Angela Lansbury, through Sally Field, through Clint Eastwood, through Mickey Rooney. The most incredible people in show business came and gave us their time and because other people in show business revered these people, they came and performed all gratis, all for nothing. And we sold tickets that were not cheap and made a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars, all for the betterment of other people with mental problems. So it was Hollywood shining a spotlight on a dark abyss that is mental illness and hoping that that spotlight was the light of healing that would bring them into the world. And, and all I can do is say, we have been blessed in so many ways, those of us who are participating, and a lot of people are blessed because of our efforts. So thank you, crazy show business people, for helping crazy people who can't help it. Now, Ruta Lee, Debbie Reynolds, Jane Mansfield. Anonymous Mansfield was credited as being an outstanding intellect, 
But very few women I know in my own background growing up were given the perspective and the respect of an inner talent, an intellectual talent. Do you feel it's changed significantly for the better, or do you feel we have a long way to go? Oh, I think we have a long way to go. Um, I think that most of us don't use enough of our intellect. Um, I feel that in some cases it's over-publicized where it shouldn't be. (laughs) Uh, But on the other hand, one can never have too much intelligence. Uh, I think if you use your intelligence wisely, uh, which is a very difficult thing to do without becoming very studious and and, uh, renowned for being an intellect, um, you know, I have too much to learn to even comment on this, but I, I think that if you just give in to whatever it is that your calling is, be it professorial, be it uh, musical, be it uh, dance, be it whatever, poetry, be it whatever, give in to it, love it, uh, nurture it, do the best you can. But in the meantime, learn to do something that will feed you and clothe you while you're trying to do what you think you do best. Now, judging your career, box office cashier to box office star, (laughs) if someone in the audience, comparably, is listening to this and saying to themselves, well, I must be able to do that. I have to try. In a very concise way, what advice would you give them? Precisely what I just said, and I stick to the same drummer. I don't care how gifted and wonderful you are. You have to eat. You have to have the money to to have transportation to get you to the audition or the meeting or the uh, interview. And even if it means doing dishes, whether it means flipping hamburgers, whether it means waiting tables, whether it means Uber driving, whatever it takes, don't be embarrassed. Do it to survive until what you really want to do hits home with the right person and you get the job that you were hoping for. It would seem the way you describe theatrical work and the way others have described it on this program, there must be a hunger. It's not simply, I'll pick up the cello and play tonight. There has to be an inner drive that many don't have. Well, I feel that I had a calling to do what I have to do. I'm not sure that I ever had the drive. I think if I had worked as hard on my career as I worked on fundraising for mental health, uh, that I could have told Barbara Streisand to get off the world. You know, it's just that I worked, but I didn't work hard at getting the work. 
I admire those people who do. I admire those people that really put themselves on the line uh, working. My my life came a little easier. I had parents that supported all of this that I wanted to do through my teenage years so that I didn't have to struggle. Mind you, as you know, I, I worked at Grauman's Chinese Theater uh, as an usherette to make extra money that, that I could spend on lacy underwear or something that a kid likes to have, you know, and when you're in high school. And uh, my parents always instilled a, a tremendous work ethic in me, but I would never really worked at getting the work. It came my way because I, I went on an interview or something, and, and I wasn't kidding when I said for every job you get, you get a hundred rejections. And that's something that you have to learn to live with in show business. And if it gets to you and it tears at your heart and soul, then you don't belong in show business because you're bound to have rejection. Whether it's lack of the laughter from the audience on a funny line you've delivered, whether it's uh, you know not, not receiving applause at the end of a performance, whether it's not getting the job or getting badly reviewed by the critics, all of that is rejection, rejection, rejection. But, like I said, the, the warmth of the, the, and the joy of hearing laughter and response and applause and a good check at the end of the week uh, on a movie job, wow, that more than makes up for the pain. Do you enjoy watching yourself? Yes and no. Um, because, yes, I enjoy watching what I did, especially now in the early things that I did, because I find that I, I'm amazed that I was innately uh, that good at what I did, that I did well. On the other hand, there are so many times when I'll say, now, why did I choose that kind of a look or a line? Why did I do that? Oh, how foolish that was. But uh, that that's not quite as often. I guess I guess I'm a little proud of some of the work that I've done and the fact that I was able to do it without a lot of instruction. You know, you always say you're in the hands of a director. Uh, a, a good director lets you do what you're doing and maybe tweaks it a little bit, but doesn't put words in your mouth or tell you how to do something. One wonders how important a quality co-star is and if indeed you remember those who just were pleasurable to work with because they brought so much that is talent out of you. You know, Robert, I, I don't remember with working with anybody that I didn't like. Uh, and I always felt very welcomed, uh, whether it was a male or a female co-star. And uh, I always wanted to do that. I wanted to share that. I remember one time, when I was hot stuff on a set at Warner Brothers on the Alaskans or something that I was doing. And, um, you know, you, you, you have a chair and, and they, they bring you a cup of tea or water or whatever when you're sitting around waiting for things to happen. And you, you tend to ignore all the company that's around you, the extras and the, the, the bit players and so on and so forth. Not ignore, but you're, they're there, but they're not a part of your little on-team circle. And someone once said to me, you see that gentleman sitting over there? 
with that group of men that are in the background? And I said, yeah. And they said, that was, his name was so-and-so, and he was a big star in the silence and the early talkies. And I looked over and thought, holy mackerel. He's just sitting on whatever he can find to sit on, and he was sitting in a chair like mine back then. And I then found it very, very important to include everybody on the set in at least my greeting, if not my lunch date. And um, I've sort of had that attitude all the time that everybody on the set has something wonderful to contribute and maybe they've had their big moment in the sun and it's your big moment in the sun right now, but that can change very rapidly, especially for women. And so enjoy your spotlight, but share it with everybody around you. Now, not to appear contretemps to what you just said, I certainly agree with it, but you said, especially if you're women, is there an innate toughness that you would advise people to develop? Toughness? To a certain degree, yes. Um, tough so that you can take the rejection without tearing your heart and soul out. You know, we're all up... I, I see the same ladies up for the same parts, and we laugh now because we're all old enough to just go, oh, who cares? One of us will get it. We're all good, you know. Um a certain kind of toughness. Uh, I think you have to develop a toughness about understanding what the finances are and not being stupid and letting somebody handle all of that for you and uh, not understand anything about what's going on. Um, but I think along with the toughness, you have to remember that a softness and a warmth is very palatable by everybody who might be very tough and mean around you. And uh, use your softness as a weapon rather than your toughness in difficult situations. Now, you've done really virtually it all, as they say, drama, comedy, musicals. To your experience, which is the most satisfying and which is the most difficult to project? Well, I love musicals more than anything, even though they're very, very hard to do. Physically, musicals are tough. They're tough because it's hard work, just learning everything that you have to learn, uh, the dance steps, the, the hitting the marks, hitting whatever. Uh, but the best part of it is that no matter how low you might be feeling or how bad the cold is that you have in your head or throat, that you hear that orchestra strike up the overture and somehow all the pain disappears and all of a sudden when you make your entrance and you hear that applause, you are buoyed beyond belief and you can sail and ride through anything any pain, any agony, somehow disappears when you hit that. And then to hear the applause at the end of the performance, 
preferably from standing people, and then, as I said earlier, to get a check at the end of the week for the work that you've done is um, more than a blessing. It's it's kind of wonderful. And so I uh, that's why I love doing the musicals. And now, of course, I'm at an age where there are not that many musicals that I can do anymore as a leading lady. And uh, it's hard to give up the role of leading lady because my energy level is that of a 25-year-old, and I'm not sure if it's a blessing or a curse to be bouncing along in life. Here I am in my 80s, and uh, but I can still do Hello, Dolly. I can still do MAME. I can still do a lot of things because um, makeup helps you look younger and younger if you have to. I have a marvelous childhood memory of listening to the actor Walter Houston. He was singing September Song on a televised program. He could not sing. He could not hit the notes. He talked the song. But my father wept. I've often wondered, can that be taught? Can you find someone with or without the voice, the dance moves, the personality, and teach them to be empathetic to a crowd of people who are strangers? I don't think it can be taught. Technically, you can be taught certain things. But he was probably one of the first to sing, talk a performance. Uh, but then stop and think. Rex Harrison did it beautifully uh, in, in so many things. Uh, Yul Brynner did it beautifully. Um, the talk, sing, performance, and, and tearing someone's heart out, as, as Rex did also, uh, with a, uh, I've grown accustomed to her face. You know, uh, the, the, you have to be a damned good actor to sell a song that you're not singing. Um, a certain amount of it is technique, which obviously it has to be. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've played plays where I had to weep copious tears at the drop of a hat, and you learn to do it by pulling something up that makes it happen in every performance, be it a matinee or an evening performance or twice that day, which is not easy. Um, and and yet you that that part is a certain amount of technique of learning how to use your your body and your spirit and your inner being and your mind to make something work, that can't really be taught. It can be explained that the technique is necessary, but you have to suck it up out of your own heart and gut yourself. That's a very profound statement. Is there a role then that you could go back to a thousand times, ten thousand times. Is there a favorite role? Oh yes, of course. There, there are several as far as that goes. Uh, one of them being, if, if I could, well, I could still do the the Debbie Reynolds version that she did on the stage. But my favorite role, uh, till the day I die, would be the unsinkable Molly Brown which became Debbie's signature piece because she did the movie. But then later on, she did a version of it when she was older, on the road, 
her youth became a almost dream sequence, a a whole reliving of the past so that she could get away with being the age she was when she was supposed to be this little tomboy. I could probably still do that. And the reason that I love Molly Brown so much, is, and I've played it so much and all around the country, is that Meredith Wilson, who wrote Molly Brown, came to see me in the very first time that I played it in Texas. And he said to the press, Ruta is the best Molly Brown of them all, and if she had played it on Broadway, it would still be running. And I took that as one of the most gratifying remarks ever made about me. And uh, I took it to heart and kept it in my heart and uh, adored anything Meredith Wilson ever did and was grateful. Actually, you know something? He was a landowner next door to a piece of property that I bought with my seven brides' money in Idlewild, California, because he was on the staff of Isomata, which was the Idlewild School of uh, Arts and Music up there. And uh, I just adored him, and then uh, I, of course, adored his first wife, and then his widow also became a very, very dear friend, and uh, uh, I kept seeing her until the day she died. She was also a supporter of the Thalians, by the way, as was Meredith. I had read that particular review. Do you read your reviews oh, on a regular course. basis? Of course I do. Of course. And, and, and the ones that are not what you were hoped for um, kind of smart a little bit. But thank God I've had very, very few of those. Uh, and you kind of get a little ticked off about why would he say that when, when everybody else thinks that, or I, then obviously he wasn't in the audience that I performed for. You know, it was that kind of thing. And uh, But that's just one of the many thousands of hurts that come your way in show business, is, is rejection, whether it be in print or uh, a critique on the air or television. But thank God we have enough stamina to get it all together and go back out and do a maybe a better performance because of it. They say there's a book in everyone. At what point did you finally realize that you wanted to promulgate that thought and write the book? I have to tell you that I could not sit down and write longhand or on the keyboard. <laughs> By the way, I'll mention that I failed typing four times in high school. And they finally said, forget typing, go take shop. That's how bad I was. I, I wanted to type, but I wanted to type my way, which is the way I do it now, thank you. But I, I realized it when a darling man who worked in television and was a PR man, Barry Rogers in Dallas and Fort Worth in that area, came to me one day on a show that I was guesting on and said, Ruta, you have got to write a book. You have such funny, wonderful stories to tell about show business and the people that you've worked with and known. And 
you've you've just got to. I you have me laughing and smiling all the time at the stories that you tell. And so I said, okay, okay, okay. And he said, I'm going to come out to California, and I'm going to sit with the tape recorder and listen to you tell stories, which is exactly what he did. And he recorded every telephone ring. He recorded every dog bark. He recorded, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom now. And all of this got printed. (laughs) And so then we really had to edit and then start juggling as to what's going where. And I do have a wonderful assistant, Judy Diamond. And the three of us sat for many a weekend and put stories together and tried to do this. And finally, it's all together. I now have a couple of rewrites that I have to do. And uh, hopefully, we'll go to print. I'm not sure. We're kind of shopping to see who would be the best for me and I the best for them. And hopefully by next year I'll have the the book out. And it's it's titled in a very very crazy way, but it's an expression that I use, and I mean from the bottom of my heart. And that is the finest thing that I can say to you is consider your ass kissed. If you turn the television knob to see me on the show and didn't turn it off and you went to a movie to see me, or you came to the theater to see me, or you listened to some radio show that I was doing and you stayed with me, and you sent prayers for my grandmother when I was fighting Khrushchev to get her out of Siberia and Lithuania, or you sent a blessing in some way, what can I do but say, consider your darling ass kissed? And I mean it so sincerely, and I hope nobody is offended by it. And if they are, they have no bloody sense of humor. I agree. 110%. Do you feel that there is a line, however, in writing a book, Ruta, that one has to be very careful about? There's a certain amount of vulnerability in writing about one's self and the people one has known and embraced in their life. Where did you draw that line? I'm not sure that I did draw the line. Um, I, I have really nothing ugly to say about anybody. I, I do a, a chart at the end of the book that has to do with co-stars or leading men especially uh, that have touched my life. And I I make a maybe two-word or one-short-line comment on each one of them. And I find that most of them are very, very flattering. Very few, because it has been the case of very few people in my life have I not gotten along with or thought the the greatest of. but then I'm easy to know, and I'm easy to get along with. Hell, I can get along with snakes, uh, you know, uh, and, and I fear them, but I can get along with them if I have to. And, uh, I, in fact, I have two fears in life, snakes and dentists, and I'm not sure in which order. But I, I can manage. And uh, so I, I don't think the line for me would be in saying anything demeaning and hurtful. 
um, if something hurt in the book, wow, I, I, I don't think I would like to do that. But I don't, I don't think it's dishonest if you don't have something trashy to say about someone, even if you might feel that, that you'd like to trash them on occasion. Are there many people in this life who you'd love to see again just to say thank you? Yeah. Everybody I've ever met. Because everybody has contributed in some way or another. You know, it's interesting that you bring this up. I've been asked about things that happen in life like this, and and the the line between uh, people that are great fans and worship you and hate you is very, very fine. People's egos, I think, are so fragile sometimes, and they're hard to distinguish sometimes. And I'm, I'm going to tell you about, I was at a chili cook-off in Terlingua, Texas, which is right outside of, it's in the hill country. It's, it's absolutely starkly gorgeous, very, very dry, very raw. And it's not far from Marfa, Texas, which is where Giant was shot. So you know, thinking of Giant, about these big plains, and then there are mountains that you go to where Terlingua is. And people had flown into Terlingua in private planes, but we had come in from Hollywood on a big plane that landed in Texas, in Marfa, excuse me. And uh, it, it didn't have high, uh, runway lights at night, so you had to get out before sundown. And now it was drawing to the close of the day, and the sun was beginning to think about going down, and I was desperately afraid that I was going to not make the flight in time and have to stay overnight in Marfa, which meant I wouldn't be back on the set at Warner Brothers the next day for a Maverick I was doing, and I'd be in big trouble. So someone suggested that I try to hitch a ride on one of the private planes that were there in Terlingua to Houston or Dallas or wherever they'd come in from where I could get a commercial flight to Los Angeles and make it back for my six o'clock call at the studio. And I was running like crazy with Rona Barrett's photographer uh, to see if we could both hitch a ride. And a gal grabbed me as I was running to the the teeny little airstrip, and motors were beginning to rev up, um, and said, Oh, Rudy, I just love you. I love you so much, honey. I just think you are the sweetest girl. I love you. And I said, Sweetheart, thank you for loving me, but I got I can't talk. I gotta run. I gotta catch a plane. And she said, Oh, yeah. Well, I hope it crashes. And she was so distressed with this. And I thought, you hope it crashes? And I hauled off and socked the woman. And she was so surprised, so was I, frankly, that she was holding a beer in her hand and she went to throw it in my face, but all it did was loop back at her. And I was shocked and dismayed that I did that. I have never smacked or done anybody <laughs> any harm. And I, it taught me a lesson, though, that this adoration and adulation that you get can be turned very quickly into something else if you don't satisfy their momentary need. And uh, so I, I, I try very hard always to please and never to bring out anger 
in anybody, and especially in myself. I don't want to haul off and sock anybody again. There is a questionnaire used in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, a series of questions whereby the last question is, you're at the pearly gates, and uh, Peter is about to either let you in or lock the door. How would you like God to welcome you? Ruta Lee, how would you like God to welcome you? I kind of hope and pray that St. Peter will say, you have been a do-gooder all your life with every breath you take and with every heartbeat of yours. If you screwed up somewhere, I think you will be forgiven because you've covered your ass by doing such good things for other people. Hopefully, that's going to be it. And hopefully, my best girlfriend, Debbie Reynolds, will be standing there whispering in God's ear, yeah, I taught her everything she knows. Let her in. That's a marvelous... (laughs) It's a marvelous discussion of how you would like the circle to come to a close. I would imagine we're all looking forward to that moment in time where we try to ratify what we've done in our life. You seem to have done it full circle and done it quite well. Uh, You know where I'm having a hard time now, we sort of briefly touched this, uh, is that what's very, very difficult for me is to constantly show patience. Patience is not one of the virtues that I was terribly blessed with. I do everything in a hurry uh, at a speedrunner's pace, and I want everything yesterday, not now. And my beautiful husband, who was at one time the executive VP of McDonald's and then president of Bonanza, the steakhouses, Uh, a a good businessman and one of the most handsome, gentle, beautiful souls that ever came down the pike is unfortunately now, after a stroke, still left fine physically, but not fine mentally. And dealing with dementia is a business that I never expected to be in. And I don't know how to handle it exceedingly well. I'm learning on the job. And boy, do I admire people who have lived with it for years and years and have still retained their sanity and above all their sense of humor. And I think that's what sees me through mostly is uh, God didn't give me patience, but he gave me an outrageous sense of humor. And I can usually find humor and laughter in no matter how bleak the situation is. So it's helping me through, but oh boy, anybody who has the magic button on patience, let me know how to push it. And I hope and pray that some of your listeners will send up a prayer that... uh, Who is it? St. Anthony helps you find things. Boy, do I ever work that saint. I'm always losing my car keys and everything else, and the older I get, the more I lose things. Uh, But uh, I have not yet lost my sense of humor, but I sure would like him to find my patience for me. 
This hour has gone by exceedingly quickly. Have we done an hour? We have. Oh, God, I didn't mean to preach. I really meant no, to no. laugh with you, you more, Robert. <laughs> no, I, I intend to choose a quiet moment tonight, walk into a shadow, and think of your situation. And what a if, sweet if thing my thought to say. can help. Marvelous. Oh, my dear, darling, new best friend, Robert, thank you for sharing your audience with me. And may I say, from the bottom of my bottom and the bottom of my heart, consider your darling ass kissed. <laughs> thank you. Would you mind staying on the line for a few moments after we close? I'll be happy to. Thank you. The program has been seldom said. Our guest is Miss Ruta Lee. Hopefully we'll do it again. It's been our pleasure. Be with us again. Mm-hmm.